This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So I'm, I'm going to be talking about this novel. This is the novel in which I wrote my, my dissertation. But a big part of this dissertation, it's about the context. So the political and uh, cultural co context. So today, I'm going to be talking about political and cultural context. And then I'm just going to talk a little bit about the sexuality in the, in the novel. Um, <clears throat> as you can see, this, this, um, any document of this uh, length can, could be uh, worth for uh, many topics. And this author is very, <clears throat> um, it's very deep. So um, there, is, there are a lot of things there um, in, that, that we can use uh, as a topic. Okay, so I'm going to start uh, reading. <coughs> this is him. In a recent documentary on the life and works of Octavio Paz, Elena Poniatowska told how back in the 1950s, she and Octavio, together with Carlos Fuentes and Juan Garcia Ponce, would assemble in Octavio Paz's house to read their poems to discuss about the Revista Mexicana de Literatura, that was a very important uh, magazine of this time, and to discuss, discuss the ground of what would later become their political ideas. Garcia Ponce appears in the Mexican literature at a time in which it was somehow mandatory to write about Mexico and to contribute to the definition of the nation <coughs> and the consolidation of the revolutionary state imaginary. We have to write about what is Mexico and the state, right? That's that was a very important uh, thing to do. We should remember that many of the most important intellectuals devoted par part of their, their work to this matter. From Manuel Gamio, Forjando Patria, um, this, this was a book about how we can become a mestizo state. What can we do? Um, that was kind of a strategy about this is going to be Mexico, we're going to do it this way, and we need to mix the people. And he says that even if we need to force them, we're going to do it. But we need to you know, become one thing, one race. Forjando Patria from 1960, 16, I'm sorry, to La Raza Cosmica de Jose Vasconcelos, which is a very famous book um, from Jose Vasconcelos that he was very important intellectual and he created um, a system of education, so he's very important as well. La Raza Cosmica <coughs> is basically about a new race in which a lot of races get mixed, and it's going to create like a perfect man, right? And he seems to be saying that he is the first uh, perfect man of a new um, race. Um, uh-huh. And, and Jose Vasconcelos is a very important figure. He, he later published a, a, a revista, a review, a magazine pro-Nazi, openly, in Mexico. Um, and then El perfil del, del hombre y la cultura en México, um, and El laberinto de la soledad de Octavio Paz. In all these books, the question of what is to be Mexican is at stake. And it's hard to tell if these reflections are part of an analysis of these ideas or actually are creating that, that identity, right? The literary and cultural production could not avoid this kind of discussion 
because before 1910, it was still being defined as values of the newly, newly independent country. In addition, after the Mexican Revolution, everything had to be rethought and redefined within the existence of the revolutionary state. Everything, everything, what's the nation? It is part of the culture in Mexico during the 19th and the 20th century that many of the intellectuals are embedded in the dynamic of political power. As Angel Rama explains in the letter City, this is a remnant of the colonial social structure where the intellectuals were part of the clergy and the clergy were part of the political power and its function was not separated from the state power structure, right? The clergy were, had the knowledge and it was linked to the political power. And this, this was operating even to a very big part of the 20th century. Even to the 20th century, you can see traces of this structure. They're not clergy, but they're intellectuals. And it's a very, um, you can trace this. This genealogy of intellectuals can be traced and analyzed through too many elements. <coughs> uh, groups of intellectuals and magazines. This is very important, the magazines. This way we can mention the Ateneo de la Juventud. This is a group of intellectuals. It was a group formed at the beginning of the 20th century influenced by modern philosophers as Kant and Nietzsche. And they were translating Nietzsche and Kant and giving talks and everything. They published in several magazines, a Revista Moderna, that was their, their review, the magazine, and contributed to the creation of the UNAM as we know it, La National University. Alfonso Reyes and Jose Vasconcelos were two of the most important members of this group. And here we can see how it's created, how all these, these uh, intellectual creations are working. This is a very modern building, but everything here, it's a pre-Columbian uh, motifs for the, for the murals, right? And they, this is part of the modernization of Mexico. They're creating a new university, but claiming um, <coughs> the new nation, revolutionary state nation, and um, integrating the, the indigenous motifs, okay? <coughs> uh, Los Contemporáneos, that was next, um, was at the same time a literary magazine and a group of intellectuals. Some of them were the disciples of Vasconcelos and the most of them had the cosmo cosmopolitan perspectives on literature. They were all trying to achieve an aesthetic modernization in literature and all of them, just like the members of Ateneo group, work for the government. After this movement, there appeared as a counterpart the avant-garde rupture called Los Estridentistas, who were interested in criticizing the elitist form of art. This is a very avant-garde response, right? To undermine um, the established values, they were pretty much, um, and they were very influenced by the avant-garde in Europe. This group was based in Jalapa, Veracruz, and as their rivals worked for the government and contributed to the foundation of the Universidad Veracruzana. This one of the best universities in humanities and arts nowadays in Mexico, and it's thanks to these guys. From now and on, one of the best in the humanities. Okay. After this last group appeared the avant-garde and the new economic possibilities of new, a new state, um, they created uh, the possibilities to a major diversification of groups of intellectuals. 
However, the same tradition of intellectuals remained dominant. This way, <coughs> as disciples of the contemporaneos, appeared the group of Taller, in which Efraín Huerta and Octavio Paz were the most important and visible representatives. The magazines produced by them were distributed in many countries in Latin America. This was the first time in which something produced in Mexico get to all over Latin America. And they, they start to claim a new intellectual genealogy. Los contemporáneos, they, they discover or rediscover Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. And they say, oh, look, this is Mexican. And uh, we, we look like, like her, right? We're, we have these forms. And through Sor Juana, they can get to Góngora, and they can get to the classical tradition. So they say, it's us, and then this is the Ateneo, and there is Sor Juana, and there is Góngora. So we belong to the Spanish language. And then Octavio Paz, one of the most famous books is Las Trampas de la Fe. From, uh, it's a biography of Sor Juana. So Octavio Paz, what he's saying is that I know everything about her. So I'm in this tradition, right? I belong to the language. Okay. <coughs> Surrounding Octavio Paz appear several groups of, of young intellectuals, all of them with, with a sophisticated formation, speakers of several languages and working as translators, critics, poets, writers, writers and narrators. Among them were Carlos Monsiváez, Elena Poniatowska, José Emilio Pacheco, Sergio Pitol, and Juan García Ponce. All of them speak at least four languages, right? Sergio Pitol speaks like, I don't know, seven, eight. Unlike these previous generations, these intellectuals refuse to have a definite name or group, even if, even if other intellectuals identify them as a closed circle. They call, it, they call sometimes the group of García Ponce la mafia, right, the mob. Juan García Ponce participated actively in the intellectual and political life. He was working as editor and other positions at the same time in three different um, magazines. Revista de la Universidad, that was a big um, publication. Cuaderno del Viento, that was more modest, more like alternative. And Revista Mexicana de Literatura, founded by Octavio Paz and Carlos Fuentes. And he collaborate, collaborated regularly in the cultural supplement of Siempre. This was a very important magazine during the 60s because in this magazine appear all the alternative um, <coughs> political ideas, like let's support the Cuban Revolution and so on. Okay. <coughs> These magazines were um, the place where many of the most important theoretical and aesthetic discussions took place. In Revista Mexicana de Literatura, García Ponce published several translations of rele relevant authors, as, such as um, Adorno and Herbert Marcuse, and introduced many other new writers, mostly from Europe. The title of the magazine itself <coughs> tells us much about his per perspective of literature, because when Carlos Fuentes, Emanuel Carvalho, and Octavio Paz founded the publication, they made the statement that they don't want to make a revista de literatura mexicana, right? But a revista mexicana de literatura. It's not a magazine that publishes Mexican literature, but a Mexican magazine that publishes literature, right? Universal. Because it was to be a magazine with 
universal literature made in Mexico. So um, in this quote, um, we can see how they're perceiving. Blanco Aguinaldo was one of the first collab um, um, collaborators in this, in this um, <coughs> magazine. So, say, Los jóvenes escritores que formaron el núcleo promotor de la revista eran novelistas, poetas y ensayistas. ¿sí? Entonces, su posición, ¿sí? esta publicación se había puesto, se había propuesto contrarrestar la creciente tendencia de la cultura mexicana hacia el nacionalismo imperante en su momento. Y su posición política era ni capitalismo ni estalinismo. So this, pub this publication tended to be more democratic. Uh -huh. Escaping from this political duality implied a shift on the intellectual field. In the times in which every intellectual was supposed to assume a perspective and to defend and to practice it, these intellectuals, uh, regardless of their perspective, that was radical in the most of the cases, um, opened the publication to a broader range of opinions and aesthetic practices. Garcia Ponce joined the editorial board three years after the founding. The magazine in which Garcia Ponce participated as editor published a plurality of voices and allowed the theoretical debate and new tendencies in poetry and narrative. The new per this new perspective is fundamental because in this period of time, the aforementioned model of lettered city was in crisis as an intellectual model because of reasons that Jim Franco explains. The extent of this conflict of competing univer universals can only be understood in the context of society in which literature conferred status, <coughs> conferred status and relative independence on writers who were not only vociferous critics but had, in the 60s, substantially redefined their tradition their traditional pedagogical role. They're not, they're not trying to be uh, professors or to form um, the social structure like Vasconcelos was trying to do. Um, this author, Garcia Ponce, had many contradictions and tensions on his life and aesthetics perspective because even if he denied practicing literature as a pedagogical activity, he was expecting to inform society, but not essentially to form it, instead trying to undermine its values. I will talk about this later. He was trying to change, but through undermining and through making the reader uncomfortable. And this, this is relation to, to Adorno uh, theory about aesthetic negativity and all the thing. This author, um, <coughs> OK, and then, <coughs> Okay. Um, other very remarkable thing about his conception of literature is that he was very updated on the, on the debate between George Lucas, Lukács um, and Theodor Adorno and others. And he decided to attack Lukács on an essay entitled Lukács, Realista de la Irrealidad, right? When Significado Actual del Realismo Crítico was published in Spanish. So he was very updated in the, the debate in Europe and the States about the aesthetic and realism versus modernism. And he decided to, um, that, to attack Lukács. Entonces, él dice, como, como comentarista, como estudioso de la estética, Lukács tiene la enorme ventaja de no creer en ella más que como fuerza que debe ser puesta al servicio de una causa determinada. 
en este caso, el socialismo. Y en este sentido, lo que hace, en realidad, es negarla. Es decir, Lucas habla de estética, pero lo que García Ponce dice es que no está hablando de estética, la está acabando. ¿sí? Um, si Lukács se atreviera a pensar, ok, la desaparición de la literatura, su condenación, en tanto que es capaz de sobrir a la, a la interpretación histórica que él considera la única posible para encerrar la realidad, conservando sus valores estéticos, sería la consecuencia lógica del significado actual del realismo, si Lukács se atreviera a pensar de una manera radical, esta debería ser su conclusión. Es decir, Juan García, Pon Juan García Ponce is uh, correcting Lukács, and, and he is trying to criticize him in this very um, strong way. Mm. It is interesting that, like Lukács, García Ponce had Thomas Mann as a literary model. And it is interesting as well that he attacked Lukács despite the fact that most of his novels are realistic. This is kind of a contradiction because he was attacking Lukács because Lukács didn't like modernism, but García Ponce was not the modernist writer. He was realistic the most of the time. This novel has some modernist um, aspect, but it's not, it's not a modernist novel. Another example is that he claimed his literature to be universal practice, but he omitted and ignored the indigenous and syncretic cultures that he had very close to him. He rejected the idea of taking part in a national literature dynamic, but his novel, Crónica de la Intervención, is racialized in terms that also appear in other Mexican works, as to say, um, Ignacio Manuel Altamirano, El Sarco, which is a novel that is trying to create a state, uh, is trying to create an identity. So El Sarco starts, starts um, describing uh, the character in it like uh, Michelangelo's David, right? He's strong and tall and blah, blah, and says, ah, but it's indigenous, right? So he's racializing the novel and the characters. Juan García Ponce does the same. Even if he does, doesn't want to be involved in that things, at the end, he's creating a class differences through race. So there is a, there is a driver here uh, that is the driver of this wealthy family, and um, <coughs> he seems indigenous or mestizo or something, so he behaves very different uh, than the other characters. He's ignorant, he just behaves like in this apparently automatic um, way. Mm -hmm. Okay. To add one more factor, when he was, <coughs> what factor of, the, of these contradictions? When he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis with a prognosis of six months of life, he decided to start a two novel, a two volume novel. Um, <coughs> so they say, you, you have six months of life, and say, okay, I'm just gonna start writing this thing. Uh, he lived 34 years more after this, um, so he had plenty of time. It's, it's amazing what, what happened. But as he was contra contradictory in his life and work, so his political and cultural environment ha <coughs> had his share of, of contradiction. In this novel, he reflected many of these contradictory aspects. In its very title, it recalled the historical process in Mexico called intervention that, is, that it consisted in the wars 
uh, that Mexico fought against uh, the invasion of USA in 1846 and France in 1861. The novel presents itself as a historical novel in many aspects, and in many aspects it is, but not from the historical process that it seems to refer to. So if it speaks about the 1968 massacre, what kind of intervention is he talking about? Apparently what he suggests is that the use of public force against the students is an intervention, that the government and the army are the external threat to people. Raul Rodriguez <coughs> clearly states that in Cronica, <coughs> one of the first ways in which we recognize that we're facing an encounter with the allegories of cultural ruins that inform and embody contradiction is the word Cronica uses a relic of epic tales from the time of the conquest to the modern Europe. <coughs> in this use of word crónica, he is referring <coughs> a particular historical genre, and, he's po <coughs> and he positions his writing as a part of historical formation. The reference in the novel <coughs> to pre-Columbian ruins juxtaposes with the modern city <coughs> are a very important elements to this novel and the political and historical process. On the one hand, he's showing how after the October 2nd, 1968, the massacre of the, de la Plaza de las Tres Culturas revealed itself as a place where the past and the present could not coexist easily or peacefully. On the other, he's showing how the Mexican government erased from its discourse all the social conflicts and kept going with the organization of the Olympic Games. This is the place where the massacre occurred. Those are pre-Hispanic ruins. And this is a, this is a um, church from the colonial period. And this is the very, very modern buildings built by, uh, designed by Mario Pani, one of the best uh, and most um, famous architects in Mexico. Uh, but the structure of this square seems to be like a trap when you're there. And, and the, the form and, the, and, the, and the, the structure in which this was built facilitated the massacre. They could not escape. They were, they were inside like a trap. So what the Mexican government was um, promoting is like this is a space when, where the past and the modern and the culture from the originary culture and the Spaniards and what we are now, we can have a time, we, we can uh, have a confluence in time and space and we can live peacefully. But what Garcia Ponce is saying in this novel is that that's not possible because after the massacre, it, it, that's pretty much clear. <coughs> Apparently the modernization of the country implied a contradictory policy to the exterior, very <coughs> to the exterior very different that they use on domestic issues. The Olympic Committee created a publication in different languages as everything from this period, but at the same <coughs> time, President Diaz Ordaz had an austere domestic economy. The publication was made on an almost absurd scale. As Luis Castañeda explains, the Olympic Publication Office, headed by the designer Beatriz Trublot, um, this is going to be this is going to be a character here in the in the novel. <coughs> um, 
Based in New York and um, before Mexico CCA and summoned by the Mexican Olympic Committee to orchestrate this publicity campaign, Tribble and her collaborators had disseminated these documents internationally in the months leading up to the Olympics. The production of this office happened on a gargantuan scale. Michael Gross, a designer who worked at the publication office, recalls that the team devoted to producing these print materials had to smuggle the print paper into Mexico in order to be able to print the number of posters necessary for all the Olympiad events. Garcia Ponce was part of this publication team, and he portrays the absurdity of, the <coughs> of its nature on the novel. So the, the, historical car the, the historical person is Beatrice Trueblood, and he changes the name to Beatrice Falsblood. Falsblood. <laughs> and he does the same with, with many names. <coughs> Más adelante sabría <coughs> lo que en ese momento ignoraba. He's talking about the character. Beatriz Falsblut era de Estonia o Lituania o de Eslovenia, <coughs> era de una de esas de algunas naciones desaparecidas, pero también era ahora norteamericana. Se había abierto paso en compañía de sus padres por toda la pobreza de Europa, en ruinas después de la guerra, hasta llegar a Estados Unidos. Había viajado como turista a México, había conocido a un joven arquitecto y a través de él, al menos joven Arturio <coughs> Aurelio Pérez Manrique, se había hecho amante de los dos, se había establecido en México y una parte de sus inconmensurables ambiciones estaban en vía de cumplirse como jefa de ese reciente departamento de publicaciones. Entonces, so this, um, um, is making fun about all, all this process in which seems to be serious and official, um, but, it, but it's not. Um, this publication um, gave jobs to several writers and intellectuals, including, uh, including also to the big revolutionary and against the state, Jose Revueltas. He worked for the government. He worked in this publication, right? He, he was, even if he was against them, um, who were very critical of the government. Though the most <coughs> of them remained working at the publications until the end of the Olympics, Garcia Ponce quit after the massacre, and he was the first writer to publish an article condemning the attack against a student. Um, he was very strong against the massacre. Um, so was Octavio Paz. Octavio Paz was the only one intellectual working for the government to quit uh, the job before the massacre as a protest. He was the only one. <coughs> the already mentioned character, Aurelio Perez Manrique, the, the architect, mm, represents in real life to the architect Pedro Ramirez Vasquez, responsible for much of the organization of the Olympic Games in 1968, and one of the designers of the most famous um, <coughs> modern buildings in Mexico City as the National Museum of Anthropology. Um, <coughs> This, this, um, he, he made the most of the most important, important buildings during the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. <laughs> he was one of the favorites. So if you can see, um, this is a very modern building. And this thing, it's a very interesting introduction in architecture. And this is a detail of this fountain. There is water, and it's always like raining in the in the inside the the the, the building. Mm. 
Um, Luis Castañeda recalls Ramirez's role. Perhaps the most significant episode in, this, in the story's career of architect Pedro Ramirez Vasquez was his role as chief of organizer of Mexico 68, the 19th Summer Olympics. Ramirez Vasquez informed Diaz Ordaz that this Olympiad, <coughs> an event strongly reminiscent of the World's Fair for which he had designed Mexico's national pavilions in the recent past, was intended to honor the Mexican single party state humanist and pacifist tradition, right? And this is a very interesting and important shift in the Mexican uh, culture um, in the 20th century. Because during the 19th century, the most important intellectuals were the poets and the writers. And during the 20th century, the most important intellectuals and artists taken into account by the government were architects, like Mario Pani that built uh, these huge buildings, Pedro Ramirez Vázquez O'Gorman that built some of the buildings in, in Universidad, and all of them. This shift is very important and tells us a lot about what the government was trying to do to make Mexico more modern, right? <coughs> that was the most important station in his career because after the Olympics, he became the favorite, the favorite architect of the Mexican government. And this word of humanist was very important for this epoch and this type of project. The great contradiction is that he calls pacifist to the Mexican state. <clears throat> Garcia Ponce himself explores new topics and found in eroticism an important element to use. As Huberto Batis reminds, Garcia Ponce was one of the first writers to openly use eroticism in Mexican narrative. El Tercer Número de Cuadernos de Viento, that was one of these famous magazines, se empezó a ir chueco porque publicamos un texto de Garcia Ponce que se llamaba Tajimara, y digo chueco porque era la Usanitemem. El tal cuento causó en 1960 una tremenda conmoción. So the people that used to be readers, they are scandalized by, by, by these um, stories. It was not in the, in the context. It was not in the, in the, in the culture. Garcia Pons explains that he uses sexuality as an aesthetic element to undermine values and to reformulate society. In this case, eroticism is political at the same time. In this regard, detaches himself from Octavio Paz. Even if they share many interests and, interests and perspectives, as an example of this, Paz reads Bataille. So Paz has several, uh, has a couple says on George Bataille, right? Paz reads Bataille as a philosopher to understand sexuality as a transcendental practice, which Bataille says so. So Paz is reading in a spiritual level and this very high understanding. And Garcia Ponce understands Bataille as a politically and socially transformative thinker. So that's when he uses a lot of eroticism that he borrows from Bataille to try to change sexuality. Paz talks about the spirit. For Garcia Ponce, eroticism could happen between bodies, right? For, Garcia, for Octavio Paz, he's always talking about 
love and two persons, right, to humans. Garcia Ponce talks about bodies. Uh, eroticism could happen between two or three or four or bodies, not, not gender, something that is blurring. That's erot eroticism. Garcia Ponce wrote extensively on eroticism. He spent a lot of time write, writing about eroticism. He has been considered <coughs> as an erotic writer and this novel as an erotic one for many reasons, including his, its reducti reductiveness. I disagree with this. Even though <coughs> sexuality is strongly present along this novel, I would say that in the novel, the historical, intellectual, and philosophical dimensions are more important than the erotic. Um, on a very important essay, Garcia Ponce, uh, um, entitled Literatura y Pornografía, um, he has this um, reflection. <coughs> los pios principios sobre los que se mueve la superficie del mundo cultural nos han enseñado una y otra vez que tanto la pornografía como el sexo, el lenguaje del sexo, como la literatura en tanto pornografía, contradicen el carácter humanista de la cultura. And for him, this was very positive. So we have to contradict humanism through eroticism, through sex in literature and in art. We should here remember what Ramirez Vasquez said about the humanist state. For Garcia Ponce, if that is what humanism does, then we should question this perspective of the world. This statement was informed by Ma Marxist talk. Garcia Ponce had a strong ties to these ideas through Marcuse, and Marcuse's ideas expressed in, in um, Eros and Civilization, uh, one essay on liberation or one-dimensional man, um, were very important to him. In fact, Garcia Ponce's translation of these works were well known, <coughs> were very well known. Uh, Garcia Ponce translated Marcuse in the time in which Marcuse was a very bold thinker and was almost prohibited, right? He was a threat to the state power. So Marcuse writes, <coughs> the conflict between sexuality and civilization unfolds <coughs> with this development of domination. <coughs> Under the rule of the performance principle, body and mind are made into instruments of, uh, of alienated labor. They can function as such instruments only if they renounce to freedom of the libidinal subject object, with the human organism primarily <coughs> is undesires. So this, this conflict, was where, that was where Gar Garcia Ponce was trying to, to, to solve through, through the literary practice. The relation to sexuality is at the same time the attraction to his works and the possibility <coughs> for the reader to question its own sexual practices. From the very beginning, it is present <coughs> this intention, the novel, start with Esteban recalling what Mariana said last night. Or with time. We late? Okay, just, I'm about to finish. Okay. Um, okay, I'm sorry. Um, the character is remember 
what Mariana said, and this is the beginning of the novel and one of the, the most um, famous um, beginnings in Mexican literature, Quiero que me cojan todo el día y toda la noche, is what he is remembered. Something I want to be screwed all day and all night. Um, but the sexual adventures evolve and the characters are develop, developing a sexual society where the traditional binary and heterosexual relations are in crisis. So is the nuclear family as well. The new society is based on the trust and freedom. And we have a quote that maybe you can read and while well, I'm keep uh, reading. They, they spent a long time, all the characters, establishing reflections about how they are reformulating the sexual roles. This is a conversation between a, a, a couple. Um, they're married. <coughs> this type of conversation takes place several times between different characters. They are creating new sexual roles and new sexual behaviors. So they need to have di dialogues to agree on the developing of the relations. We have to mention that Marcuse, Marcuse was the boldest thinker in the 60s, 60s, and his ideas were being assimilated by students and societies trying to achieve emancipation from the state power. His ideas were that serious threat to the state power that Diaz Ordaz called him and Eric from Filosofos de la Destrucción when they visited Mexico. <clears throat> what Garcia Ponce could achieve was tied to, the perspe <clears throat> to perspective from the critical theory um, of radical thinkers such as Marcuse and Adorno. He tried constantly to keep intellect working, <clears throat> his intellect wo working perhaps to compensate his uh, physical immobility. For instance, I think that Garcia Ponce's intellectual work follows that Adorno suggests when he says, um, <coughs> to proceed dialectically means to think in contradictions. So that's the reason because Garcia Ponce had no problems of being contradictory because it is a contradiction is in reality, it's on a contradiction, <coughs> it's a contradiction against reality. This pro procedure against reality was caused because, as he always stated, society needed to, ch to be changed. For Garcia Ponce, translating this type of authors and allowing <coughs> them to be reflected on his novel were effect effective ways to find the relation against reality <coughs> as it was to achieve emancipation ideologically and perhaps physically. Thank you. Questions, preguntas. Who was received? Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the, the reception of this novel was um, very, in a, it, w it was a kind of elitist um, writing because it didn't get to, to, the, to a broad pu public, right? It was more read by intellectuals. And um, they, the, the most of the critics uh, received the novel well and they, they, <coughs> they speak a lot of um, the eroticism. That's, that's the topic that gets over again. It's an erotic novel. 
And when they talk about erotic novel, right, I think they, they're, they're um, domesticating it. They're um, changing the, the real meaning of, of, of this novel. Uh, so the reception of, the, of this novel was mostly in that, in that level. Oh, we have a new novel of Juan Garcia Ponce. Um, it was dictated, and it's an erotic novel, and it's huge. Um, so that was most of it. But now, it, it's recently that people is paying more attention on this. I read um, a dissertation from a Mexican guy talking about art in this novel, because there is a lot of references to, to, to paintings and things. Because Garcia Ponce was an um, art critic as well. So he wrote a lot about art. Um, so that's pretty much it. It's erotic novel and so on. That's the reason because I, I had to say I disagree with this. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that in order for Mexican culture to become more global, mm -hmm. they have to reconnect with Europe? They have to what? I'm sorry? Reconnect with European values or traditions? Or why couldn't it go, you know, straight to more modern global things? Well, the, the thing here um, with, with Garcia Ponce, mm -hmm. It was, he was in this context in which you have to be Mexican and to defend the languages as, and defend the language. As I said, I got Octavio Paz was saying, okay, I belong, let's say, Sor Juana and so on, and through the language, well, but Garcia... Very comfortable in, in all the spheres, right? Uh-huh, but, but yeah, but Octavio Paz was defending always the language. But Garcia Ponce said, okay, I'm not going to question about this history in which I am embedded or, or think, I'm global. I'm completely global. And I'm just going to read, he translated Pierre Klosowski, he translated uh, Thomas Mann, he translated Styron, he translated from German, from French, from English. And so he said, like, okay, I'm just going to be global, and I'm not going to bother talking about the past. But the contradiction there is that, that I, what I already said, because he born in, in a Mayan community. So where is the Mayan culture? Where is the Mayan languages? I have been in the, I have been in all the, the, the that's global too, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a very big contradiction. I have been in, in, in that part, and they use a lot of Mayan languages, Mayan, Mayan words. So that's what he wanted to be global, but in a very um, cosmopolite, well, Eurocentric, mm -hmm. right? I, am I an answering your? Yeah. Okay. No, that I was just wondering why it had to be Eurocentric. Yeah, because why why we have to we have to look that was pretty much the model. And another answer for that is that in many cases the not Indianismo but indigenismo was presenting a lot of failures as well. So that's the reason because Juan Garcia Ponce didn't feel that comfortable um alluding indigenista um uh, things in indigenistas because a lot of intellectuals, and in, in this time, were already sounding the, voice, the voices from indigenous, saying, hey, even if you're indigenous, don't talk for me, don't speak for me. I have my own speech, so please, right? Don't try to represent me. Don't try to speak in, on my behalf. When did he start the novel? He, start, he started the novel in 1969, around that. Mm -hmm. And it, ta it 
it takes 10 years to finish it. And then he spent a couple years correcting it. Mm -hmm. <coughs> mm -hmm. Claro, esa es una de las, de las grandes contradicciones porque precisamente su discusión con, con, con Lukács es que él no quiere, eh, su discusión con Lukács es que Lukács sitúa a un, a, un, a un espacio histórico determinado la interpretación uh, literaria y lo que él dice es que la interpretación literaria puede trascender el tiempo y el espacio, pero la radicalidad de los autores caduca, ¿sí? Es decir, en ese sentido el texto ha envejecido bastante, incluso, pero en su tiempo, a mí me parece que lo que se refleja de esos autores aquí le da una riqueza literaria. Me parece que más la radicalidad de García Ponce, y en ese sentido él lo identificó de una manera muy clara, fue que hacerlo de una manera inmediata. Entonces, ¿cómo voy a hacer que las ideas de Marcuse lleguen ahora a la gente? Pues lo traduzco, Marcuse directo. Es decir, Marcuse está aquí. El cuarto capítulo de mi tesis es Marcuse aquí, cómo se refleja. Pero en ese sentido, lo que él hacía era un todo. Uh, Marcuse se integra aquí como, como un elemento estético que enriquece ideas, um, que le da una, nueva, una dimensión profunda a la novela, pero lo que él hacía era, bueno, radical, vamos a hacerlo de una manera directa. Pero creo que aún um, cierta cierto encanto literario sobrevive en todo esto, en toda esta reformulación sexual y en todas estas uh, preguntas hacia el poder, hacia la historia, hacia todos estos uh, elementos. Si fuera a enseñar un curso de qué? Sobre los acontecimientos recientes, ok. Bueno, el asunto que, que a mí me ha interesado siempre es contextualizar las cosas en, en la historia y no podemos entender lo que está pasando ahora en, en Guerrero si no entiendes lo que pasó en el 68 y si no entiendes lo que pasó en el siglo XIX. Las, los movimientos paramilitares del siglo XIX que inició Benito Juárez son prácticamente lo mismo que sigue pasando ahora. Y esos conflictos que estamos viendo ahora, por ejemplo, en Guerrero, son este tipo de conflictos que García Ponce nos deja ver aquí, en los que el Estado muestra dos caras, ¿sí? Y por un lado uh, promueve una imagen, pero por otro lado las acciones son completamente diferentes. Eh, en un tiempo en el que incluso Cárdenas, que ha sido uno de los presidentes más democráticos, estaba recibiendo a los refugiados españoles, les creó una institución llamada ahora el Colegio de México a todos los intelectuales para que pudieran dar clases ahí y producir conocimiento. Estaba reprimiendo a los indígenas en Yucatán, estaba reprimiendo uh, conflictos armados en Chihuahua. Entonces, después, cuando estábamos recibiendo a las personas que venían de Argentina, Uruguay, de las dictaduras, estaba <coughs> reprimiendo y matando personas en Guerrero. Y ese 
ese, ese conflicto que podemos identificar um, más o menos en los 60s de Guerrero es el mismo conflicto que está ahora. Es decir, lo que, lo que pasó con esto que mencionas lo volvió visible globalmente. Pero ese problema siempre estaba ahí. Ese problema siempre está ahí. Entonces, yo no creo que podemos dar un curso sobre los acontecimientos de Iguala. Yo creo que tenemos que dar un curso sobre la historia de los conflictos militares en México, de los conflictos paramilitares en México, que aparecen aquí. García Ponce empieza tres, tres capítulos hablando de la historia. Entonces, para eso tendríamos que entender cómo llegaron, cómo llegaron, llegamos a estos niveles de opresión. ¿no? Que si lo seguimos viendo en cuanto a lo que mencioné, la ciudad letrada, pues también el asunto de la opresión ha seguido más o menos igual desde la época colonial. Entonces, para entender esos conflictos tendríamos que, que hablar de historia. Y eso es lo que he hecho siempre, como hablar de, del contexto y de la historia. No sé si responde la, algo más. ¿No hay más preguntas? Bueno, pues vamos a dar las gracias a nuestro... Gracias. <risa>